Chapter 6, Episode 38 Story World Through Structure Now that you've explored some techniques for making your story world develop over time, you have to connect the world with the hero's development at every step of the story. The overall arc, such as slavery to freedom, gives you the big picture of how the world of your story will change, but now you have to detail that development through story structure. Structure is what allows you to express your theme without sermonizing. It is also the way you show the audience a highly textured story world without losing a narrative drive. How do you do this? In a nutshell, you create a visual seven steps. Each of the seven step each of the seven key story structure steps tends to have a story world all its own. Each of these is a unique visual world within the overall story arena. Notice what a huge advantage this is. The story world has texture but also changes along with the change in the hero. To the seven structure steps you attach the other physical elements of the world like natural settings, man-made spaces, technology, and time. This is how you create a total orchestration of story and world. These are the structure steps that tend to have their own unique subworld, apparently defeat or temporary freedom and visit to death are not among the seven key structure steps. Let me reread that. These are the structure steps that tend to have their own unique subworld. Parenthetical. Apparent defeat or temporary freedom and visit to death are not among the key seven key structure steps. And here they are. Weakness and need, desire, opponent, apparent defeat or temporary freedom, visit to death, battle, freedom or slavery, weakness and need. At the beginning of the story, you show a subworld that is a physical manifestation of the hero's weakness or fear. Desire. This is a subworld in which the hero expresses his goal. Opponent. The opponent or opponents lives or works in a unique place that expresses his power and ability to attack the hero's great weakness. The world of the opponent should also be an extreme version of the hero's world of slavery. Apparent defeat or temporary freedom. Apparent defeat is the moment when the hero wrongly believes he has lost to the opponent. We'll discuss it in more detail in chapter 8 on plot. The world of the hero's apparent defeat is typically the narrowest space in the story up to that point. All of the forces defeating and enslaving the hero are literally pressing in on him. In those rare stories where the hero ends enslaved or dead, he often experiences a moment of temporary freedom at the same point when most heroes experience apparent defeat. This usually occurs in some type kind of utopia that is the perfect place for the hero if he will only realize it in time. Visit to death. In the visit to death, another step we'll discuss in chapter 8, the hero travels to the underworld, or, in more modern stories, he has a sudden sense that he will die. He should encounter his mortality in a place that represents the elements of decline, aging, and death. Battle. The battle should occur in the most confined place of the entire story. The physical compression creates a kind of pressure cooker effect, in which the final conflict builds to its hottest point and explodes. Freedom or slavery. The world completes its detailed development by ending as a place of freedom or greater slavery and death. 
again, the specific place should represent in physical terms the final maturation or decline of the character. Here are some examples of how the visual seven steps work and how you attach the other four major elements, natural settings, man-made te spaces, technology, and time of the store world. Star Wars. Outer space is the overall world and arena. Weakness and need, desire. Desert wilderness. In this barren landscape where somehow farming is done, Luke feels stuck. I'll never get out of here, he complains. The event that triggers Luke's desire is a hologram, a miniature, of Princess Leia asking for help. Opponent, Death Star. Fantasy allows you to, to use abstract shapes as real objects. Here, the opponent's subworld, the Death Star, is a giant sphere. Inside, Darth Vader interrogates Princess Leia. Later, the Death Star commanders learn that the Emperor has disbanded the last remnants of the Republic, and Darth Vader shows them the deadly power of the Force. Apparent defeat and visit to death. Collapsing garbage dump with a monster underwater. Combining apparent defeat and visit to death, writer George Lucas places the characters in water with a deadly creature underneath. And the room isn't just the narrowest space in the story up to that point. It is a collapsing room, which means it gives us a narrowing of space and time. Battle. Trench. Realistically, a dogfight would occur in open space where the pilots have room to maneuver. But Lucas understands that the best battle occurs in the tightest space possible. So he has the hero dive his plane into a long trench with walls on both sides and the end point of the hero's desire, the weak spot where the Death Star can be destroyed at the far end of the trench. As if that's not enough, Luke's main opponent, Darth Vader, is chasing him. Luke takes his shot, and that small spot at the end of the trench is the convergent point of the entire film, an epic that covers the universe funnels down visually and structurally to a single point. Freedom. Hall of Heroes. The warrior's success is celebrated in a large hall where all the other warriors give their public approval. Okay, let's look at now the Wild Bunch. This story uses a single-line journey through barren territory, and it gets progressively more barren. The story also places the characters in a society that is undergoing fundamental change from village to city. New technology in the form of cars and machine guns has arrived, and the bunch doesn't know how to adapt to this new world. Problem. Town. The story begins when soldiers enter a town in the American Southwest, but this is a dystopian town because the soldiers are really outlaws, and the lawmen waiting to capture them are worse than the outlaws. Between them, they have a gunfight that massacres a good number of the townspeople. The Wild Bunch has entered the town to rob a bank, but they have been betrayed by one of their own, and many of them do not make it out alive. Weakness and Need, Baron Cantina. After the massacre, the bunch almost breaks apart in a Baron Cantina until their leader, Pike, gives them an ultimatum. Either they stick together or they die. Their problem worsens when they discover that the silver coins they had stolen from the bank are worthless. Desire. Campfire. Lying in front of a warm fire, Pike tells his second-in-command, Dutch, his desire. He'd like to make one last score and back off. Dutch immediately underscores the hollowness of this desire by asking, Back off to what? 
This line foreshadows the overall development of the story from slavery to greater slavery and death. Temporary freedom under the trees. Although its overall development goes from slavery to death, the Wild Bunch uses the technique of the utopian place in the middle of the story. Here the bunch stops at a Mexican village, home of one of their comrades, Angel. This is the one communal place in the entire story, set under the trees where children play. This is an Arcadian vision, and it is where these hard-scrabble men should live. But they move on, and they die. Visit to death. Bridge. Once again, this step occurs at the narrow space in the story so far, which is on a bridge. If the bunch gets to the other side, they are free, at least temporarily. If they don't, they die. The writers had the technique of the narrowing of time. The dynamite on the bridge is already lit when the bunch gets stuck trying to cross. Battle. Colosseum of Mapache. A big violent battle of this sort would almost certainly occur in wide open spaces. But these writers know that a great story battle needs walls and a small space to get maximum compression. So the four remaining members of the bunch walk into a coliseum, which is stuffed with hundreds of opponents. When this pressure cooker explodes, it is one of the great battles in movie history. Slavery or Death Windblown Ghost Town The story ends not just with the death of the main characters, but with the destruction of the entire town. To increase the sense of devastation, the writers add wind. Meet me in St. Louis. The overall arena is small-town America, centered on a single large house. Setting their story at the turn of the 20th century, the writers place the characters in a society changing from town to city. They structure the story based on the four seasons, using the classic one-to-one connection between the change of the seasons and the fall and rise of the family. Freedom. Summer in the warm house. The opening scene shows a utopian world. Perfect balance of land, people, and technology. Horse and carriage coexist with horseless carriage on a tree-lined drive. A boy on a bicycle rides up to the large gabled house, and inside we go, starting with the warmest, most communal room in the house, the kitchen. The riders build a sense of community, a utopia within the house, by having one of the girls in the family sing the title song, Meet Me in St. Louis, while she walks upstairs. This establishes the musical, shows the audience the details of the main story space, and introduces most of the minor characters. The girl then passes the song, like a baton, to her grandfather, who walks through another part of the house. This technique adds to to the community, not just literally by showing us more characters, but also qualitatively, because this is an extended family where three generations live together happily under one roof. Having introduced the minor characters, the main song, in the nooks and crannies of the warm house, the writers take us full circle out the window, where we meet the main character, Esther, with the best voice of all, singing the title song as she climbs the front steps. Matching the utopian world, the hero, Esther, is happy as she begins the story. She has no weakness, need, or problem yet, but she is vulnerable to attack. Weakness and need, problem, opponent. Autumn in the terrifying house. With season number two, Autumn, the warm house now looks terrifying. Sure enough, the season and the house are matched with Halloween, the holiday that acknowledges the dead. This is also where the family begins its decline. It is breaking apart because the two older girls may get married and move away, and also because the opponent, the father, decides the family should move from the small town St. Louis to big city New York. The writers use Halloween to extend their critique beyond this one family to the society itself. 
The two little girls were about to go trick-or-treating, and they spread rumors about one of their neighbors, claiming he poisons cats. Later, the youngest girl, Tootie, falsely claims that Esther's boyfriend molested her. This is the dark side of small-town life, where lies and rumors can destroy someone in an instant. Apparent defeat. Winter in the bleak house. With winter, the family reaches its lowest point. They are packed and ready to move. Esther sings Tootie a sad song about the hope for a happier Christmas next year. Someday, soon, we will all be together if the fates allow. Until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow. This family community is about to fragment and die. New Freedom, Spring in the Warm House. As a comedy and musical, this story ends with the characters passing through the crisis. Father decides to keep the family in St. Louis and emerging in spring with the family community reborn. There are not one but two marriages, and the now even larger family heads off to enjoy the World's Fair. The World's Fair is another subworld, a temporary utopia and miniature future of America, built to show this family and the audience that we can have individual opportunity without destroying community right here in our own backyard.